We find ourselves this week in the book of Acts in chapter 2, and we're finally going to finish up chapter 2. There's so much going on in this chapter that it's kind of taken us a couple of weeks to get there. Let's see. So last week, we witnessed the work of the Holy Spirit through a gentleman by the name of Peter. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, gives this um, sermon, his first one, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and it's a bold sermon. It's a sermon that, uh, it's more than just a sermon. He's proclaiming the truth that he has come to experience of the love of Jesus Christ poured out on all men and women. (laughs) All men and women. And so, through his words and through his witness, we see that it was the Lord who was really doing the speaking. We have to realize that, that any time that the Lord does something in someone else's life, maybe he uses us, but we're really just a garden hose. He pours water through us. He's the source. And then we, being willing servants, willing garden hoses, if you will, are really just the ones who the truth or the words pass through and into the lives of others. We get to speak eternity, eternal words that will make eternal impacts into the lives of those that God's planted us directly close to. So on that day, Peter had stood up with great boldness after all who had witnessed the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And he asked what this event could possibly mean. And I just realized I left my Bible in the back. And I'm going to need that. So just a second. Can you just grab me one of those Bibles in the back there? Yeah. That'll probably work. So as we see that, we see that Peter being used by the Lord... um, He didn't give his own opinions on what he thought the event was meaning, but he gave the Lord's words. He quoted from the book of Joel. So imagine this, if you will, if you were standing up in a city and there were 3,000 people standing in front of you and the Lord would use you in a mighty way to speak truth into their lives and each one of them would respond to that message and, and be saved for eternity. That's what Peter has done. It's hard for us to imagine, right? Very few times do we see 3,000 people in one place at one time. I think the sign says that there's about 1,400 people in the city of Ironton. And and most of the time, if we do see 3,000 people, it's in an arena where there's a concert or something going on. So they're all there for one purpose. But God uses Peter to speak eternal and infinite words into finite beings. He uses you and I, and we are finite. We're stuck in... Space, and we're stuck in time. That's where God's placed us, and God is outside of time. And so he takes words that are true forever, and he speaks them outside of infinity, which we can't grasp, into you and I, and then he uses us to speak those eternal words that have eternal meaning and implication into the lives of those who are finite just like us. They can relate with us. It often uh, amazes me that God would uh, use that kind of platform to get his message out. It amazes me that he would decide to limit himself to using fallible and broken instruments to do heart surgery on individual people's lives. But that's how he chooses to do it. And so God fills up Peter, and Peter gives this message. He gives a sermon, if you will, and reasons why Jesus is in fact the Messiah, this man that they had heard of. And as he gives these proofs, the whole crowd there, No doubt, it says that 3,000, give or take, on that day were saved, but I don't think that was everyone. I don't think just everybody responded positively. 
Because the gospel divides. I've never seen anywhere in scripture where everyone in the entire crowd responded. And I don't know how many people were there that day, but I'm going to assume that even Peter didn't have 100% conversion record. But their response to his sermon, as he spoke the word of God into their lives, was, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart and they responded. They said, okay, so if that is the truth, we believe you. Now what? What are we supposed to do? And Peter responds to them by saying, be saved from this twisted generation, this perverted generation. Repent of your sins and be baptized because you have been forgiven. And so he's telling them, okay, so you recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that you need a Savior. Repent, turn around, and be baptized because God saved you. And remember that Jesus had told his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, If anyone would follow me, they must first deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him. This is what Peter had called them to do. He said, humble yourself and you'll be exalted, basically. He was calling them out of darkness and into the light. So if John chapter 3 says that men were lovers of darkness and that's why they aren't willing to come out into the light. And so he's telling them, forsake your sin, turn around from it and come to me. And we can't serve both. We can't serve our sin and then say God is master. The only way that we can live our lives is either one way or the other. He makes us make that decision, that distinction. So this crowd had been convinced and because of that, they were glad to be baptized, it says. And it's funny to me because in Judaism, in order to be converted, if you were a Gentile and you were going to become a Jewish person, you were going to... You obviously culturally you wouldn't be Jewish, you'd be kind of brought into the fold, but they would have them get baptized, they would have them ritually cleansed on the outside. But Peter was telling them that they should wash because they had already been cleansed, because they trusted in the blood of Jesus. Their cleansing was by faith in the blood of Jesus, and so to be baptized was to submit themselves to an outward action that signified what had just happened to them inwardly. Baptism doesn't save us, but what it does show the world and proclaim to the world is that we trust in Jesus for our inward cleansing. That's where God starts cleansing us. He doesn't make us do a bunch of outward signs. He says, I've cleansed you already, and now I want you to identify with Jesus and being baptized. So what it began with a group listening to the words of Jesus and then doing them, responding to them and doing them, those 120 disciples we talked about that were in the upper room, On this day when Peter preached, this became an even larger group because they listened to the words of Jesus through the words of his disciples and the testimony of salvation by faith in Jesus. And in verse 41, it says there that about 3,000 souls were added to them. So this group of 120 grew up to about 3,120. It multiplied very quickly. One of the most freeing truths that I find in this passage is that the foundation of God's church The reason that they were saved was God's word. Jesus himself, and even Jesus told his disciples as he spoke to them in Matthew 24, verse 35, about his word, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. And this is how the church began, this eternal word. He said, before creation is all done, before God scraps it and builds a new heavens and a new earth, Not one jot, not one tittle. It would be like saying, 
dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Not one little mark in God's word will not come to pass before this takes place. And so eternity. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Finally get to the passage itself. There it is. It says there, in verse 41 last week, it said, Then those who gladly received his word, meaning Peter, what he had preached, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And I believe that what we see there in that verse right there is, is crucial. If we skip over it, we're kind of missing out on what they're teaching there. This is the, what I like to call the four pillars of the church. And it's funny, when we first started having services down here in AV, the first thing that happened was my pastor came down and he taught this very passage. Because this is, this is the reason that we do most of the things that we'll do inside this building and outside this building as a church. So we see the church, when it first began, with the hearing of God's word, which is important. That's what we spend most of our time doing. But what I want to point out is that this didn't change after it started. They were saved by God's word being preached and they heard it and they responded to it, but then they continued in it. And I think of it this way. If a pregnant woman has a baby, that baby, that child is inside of her and receiving sustenance, receiving nutrients through whatever the mom eats, those nutrients go straight into the baby and the baby grows and is knitted together in the womb by the Lord. Now, if that child is born, comes out, no longer in the womb, and the parents kind of just take off and leave the baby there, what's going to happen to that child? That child who has been nourished by food and nutrients is no longer going to live because it needs those things to continue. And so before they learn how to feed themselves, these people are going to need to be fed by someone. They're going to need someone that's going to care enough for them to continue it steadfastly in the Word of God. And so that's how the church continued. It's just a fledgling, just out of the, the nest, just, just hatched. And so the Lord's going to send people to, to teach them and to build them up. And so <clears throat> in the same way the church has been born is in need of constant care. And so just as the church was born through the Word of God, so it also must be sustained through the Word of God. Not just the reading and the teaching, but by the understanding of the Word of God. It's important for us to live, to go through this life. We need to be able to understand the Word of God. So they continued, it says, steadfastly. And that word there means that they were constantly diligent. And it also means that they gave themselves continually to the teaching of God's Word. They were hungry for it. They couldn't get enough. Lucy, right now, when we start shoveling in the food, she's eating, you know, like... Peas and carrots and sweet potatoes, which apparently that is a, that's an explosive situation right there with sweet potatoes with a baby. But when I go to feed her, I'm not used to doing it like Kelly can get in there quick and, and get each spoon. And the baby, when, when I try to feed her, I'm not fast enough. She's like, Dad, that's not enough. I need more. And that's what these people were like. They were so hungry for the Word of God that when, when they had people teaching it, they just wanted more. They couldn't get enough. When the doors were open at the church, they were there. They were in the temple, it says, daily. And that's how I was. When I first heard that I could understand Scripture and that it was a reasonable faith, I didn't have to check my brain at the door. P 
People couldn't get me to leave church. I wanted to stick around. I wanted to be around those guys that had already learned. I wanted them to teach me. And so the Lord blessed me with that kind of people. And that's what was going on in the beginning church. They continued steadfastly. They made the word of God the hinge on which their lives swing. And I think about a hinge on a door. Now, we can't ever really remember that many doors, right? We go through doors all the time. But what doors do you remember? You remember the doors that don't work. That stinking thing when it won't shut. I used to have a car door on my uh, 86 Monte Carlo. It had this little hinge that once in a while you'd go to shut it and it'd be stuck. And it would just go, bam, and it would just come open. Well, you don't want the door to stay open because you'll fall out of the car, right? So you'd have to fix it. You'd have to grease it. But when the hinges aren't right, all of a sudden that thing, it won't shut, it won't seal. There's wind when you're driving down the road. And, and a good hinge, when the hinge is lined up, the door frame and the door, they match perfectly. Everything lines up the top, the bottom. There's no big, huge air gap, and it seals. And when you shut it, it just clicks. I love a good door when it shuts. But most doors aren't like that, right? It's because they don't have good hinges. Sometimes they're worn out. But the Word of God is a hinge that we can place in our lives. And when it's placed in the right spot, everything else lines up. Everything else makes sense. And so the early church used the Word of God as the hinge upon which their whole church life, their family life, and their individual life swung. But this wasn't the only thing that they continued steadfastly in because we could spend our whole morning talking about why the Word of God is important. You guys know that. That's why you're here. That's why we're studying the Word. But they also continued steadfastly in three other things. Fellowship. Assembling together with other believers. Something that we need. It's something that we need to be a part of. I like what one guy described fellowship as. He says, when you forsake the fellowship of the church, the brethren, the other believers in Christ, what you do is you essentially, you are a coal that's plucked out of a hot fire and set aside. And when you take a coal out of a fire, it is still hot. It still will burn. It'll still produce heat. But eventually what happens to that coal is it loses its heat. It gets cold and eventually it dies. It becomes just a, a piece of ash. So fellowship is important. And then the breaking of bread. Now this isn't typically what we think of when we think of breaking of bread. We think of having a meal together. But what he's talking about there is communion. Look And, and remember why we take communion and why we would take communion together. Uh, the importance of taking communion is so that we, well, Jesus told us to do it, just like being baptized. But then he also, it's a way for us to look back, remember what Jesus has done, that's humbling, right? Jesus had to die for my sins, and so makes me humble. And then number two, to look inward. Lord, am I where I should be? Am I taking the truths you've been teaching me, and am I really embracing them? Am I eating them and receiving them and then doing them? Or am I just hearing them and just walking away? And, uh, and then we do it to look forward. We, Jesus said, when you take communion, you proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. And so we proclaim to the world that our Savior isn't dead. He's not in a tomb somewhere, but He's coming back. I think it's funny, too, because this is just a random thought, but um, I heard somebody teaching the other day. He said, you know, he knew this Muslim guy, and the Muslim guy said, you know, you guys don't really have anything to trust in because, I mean, we can go to Mecca. We can see Muhammad's tomb, and we know that his body's in there. And I love what the pastor said. He said, he said yeah, that's the point. 
your Savior, your, the one you're trusting in, he's in that tomb, but ours isn't. The tomb was empty when they went looking for him. And so we proclaim that he's going to come back and that he's alive. And then number four, they continued steadfastly. They gave themselves constantly to the work of prayer. Now I could go on and on and on about the fact that prayer is, is probably the least um, taken advantage of opportunity we've been given by the Lord. But you all know that. I've tried to get better at prayer and no matter how well I get at it, I always feel like I could do better. I, I, <laughs> there's this guy that writes books about prayer he did in the 1800s. His name's E.M. Bounds. He wrote at least four volumes that I know of about prayer. But what the funny thing was is at the end of his life, he had written all those books and what he came up with is he said, you know, I've written all these books about prayer, but the one thing I'm concerned with the most about my Christian walk is that I didn't pray enough. You know, he was even convicted. I, I, I could have been praying while I was writing that book. I've read many books on prayer, and the interesting thing is every time I read a good book on prayer, I get about halfway through the first page, I'm like, why am I reading this book? I should be praying right now. <laughs> but we can pray for many things, for our needs. We can pray for others that don't even know that they need prayer, that they need Jesus. We can pray for the lost. We can pray for, uh, for the guy down the street that we can't stand. You know, that's a beautiful thing about prayer. We can be honest with the Lord. So these are the four pillars upon which God builds His church. And unfortunately today, most people probably don't know what the church is actually supposed to be about. Here it says that they're supposed to be about the study of God's Word, fellowship, being together inside and outside of the church. By the way, fellowship can happen anywhere. And the breaking of bread, communion, and prayer. So everything that we do in this church is going to be about one of those things or, or a couple of those things at a time. But there are many churches who believe that in order to build the church, what they need to do is they need to have more activities. They need to get them in the door. And no doubt, we want people to hear the message, so getting them in the door is important. But if we're not doing it the right way, you've got to keep them with what you catch them with. You know? And so what we like to try to do is kind of follow this model. And sometimes, unfortunately, activities and programs can mean that we're finding other ways to try and get people in the door rather than letting the Lord do the work and letting the church serve its purpose. But what is the main purpose of the church? Because I think a lot of Christians don't know. I'm not saying you guys don't know, but I'm, I'm saying there are a lot of people that are saying, well, I just know I need to go, but I don't know why. Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Because Paul writes there in a very clear way what the purpose of the church is. And I think it narrows down what we'll spend our time doing as a church and we'll spend our time doing as Christians if we'll realize why God has left us here to be salt and light. So if you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, actually I'll start in verse 11. Paul talks about, to the, to the Ephesian church there, he says, God himself gave some to be apostles, that means sent ones, some to be prophets, those who foretell the word of God, some evangelists, those who uh, preach the gospel and reach out to the lost, and some pastors and teachers for the, equip, excuse me, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. Now what does edifying mean? It just means building up. But as you look at this, I want you to notice that the, the people that are 
given ministry in church are actually the ones that are supposed to equip and prepare and build up those who are in the congregation. And we all have this ministry of going out and doing the work of ministry. I think we hear the word ministry and we think, oh, that's for pastors. That's for worship leaders. That's for um, you name it. Somebody that works inside. The, that's for the church secretary. You know, whatever the thing might be. But all of God's people are called to go and share the gospel with all people. Anybody that can hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's not, work ministry is not just for people that are in formal leadership. It's for each one of us. So the purpose of the church is to equip all the saints, meaning all Christians, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The body of Christ can't grow unless you and I grow individually. And it says there, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, in other words, so we can mature, so we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of teaching by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, who is Christ. So each one of us has a part in that ministry. That's what God's called each one of us to. It's not just for certain individuals. So as we look at these activities and we see the priority that they were given in the activity of the early church, we see the results that we as a church will see if we would follow their example. So verse 43 in Acts chapter 2. It says, Then, as a result, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and all had things in common, had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had a need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So one of the symptoms or some of the symptoms of a church that's healthy, where the Holy Spirit is reigning, he's in control, is that fear comes upon the church Fear comes upon them. Now, this isn't the kind of fear where there's a horror movie on and they're scared. This is a holy fear. This is a a reverence, a respect for the Lord. Because when God's people are, they know God's word, when they're praying, when they're fellowshipping together, when there's unity, what happens is that fear comes upon every soul. We all realize that the Lord, we're accountable to Him with our actions and with our deeds. So, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so this is important that we have a fear, a healthy respect. And this is the kind of fear that you want to give your children so they don't touch a hot stove. This is the kind of fear you want your kids to have so they don't run across the street without looking both ways. It's not something that completely paralyzes them, but it's something that makes them think twice before they touch that hot stove or walk over to that fireplace and fall in. They don't want to be close enough to it, but they do want to, you know, feel the heat that comes off of it. 
And another symptom of a healthy church is that because they continue in the apostles' doctrine and teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayer, time before the Lord, wonders and signs were done through the apostles. There in verse 43. So God, in this case, is made visible through the things done by His children. And God gives us sometimes the miraculous happens. But oftentimes we're thinking that the miraculous is going to be something, you know, just like fireworks. It's like somebody's healed. And that, no doubt, does happen. Praying churches do see people healed. And I've seen that happen. There was a, actually a woman that comes here. Her name's Cindy. She had cancer. And I don't remember what kind of cancer it was. But we prayed. We anointed her with oil. We did what God's Word told us to do. We prayed over her in faith. And she came back the next week and she said, um, so I went to the doctor this week and they did all the same tests again and I don't have cancer. And, and that happened. That was a miraculous thing. Now, can we really explain how God did it? No. But we know that it was Him because we were praying for God to do that. We know He's able. And so, wonders and signs done through the apostles. And then another sign of a church that is healthy and being led by the Holy Spirit is something that we would maybe even take as very common, but it's not. And that is that there's unity. Now, I don't know about you guys, but anytime you're around a group of people, you expect there to be, or at least I do anymore, I expect there to be sometimes misunderstanding, lack of communication. People don't get along. It's just our nature. We, we all really like ourselves. And so when somebody gets on our territory, we, we step on their toes. So one of the signs that the believers there uh, were, were uh, in a healthy church is that there was unity amongst them. And Jesus had told the disciples, he says, the Holy Spirit will give you unity. And if you guys have been to any family reunions in the last year, you know that sometimes there's not unity, even among people that are related to one another, people that are supposed to love one another. There's misunderstandings, there's problems. But a sign of the Holy Spirit is that there's unity in the church. And then the last one is that their believers had all things in common. Verse 45 says that they sold their possessions and goods and distributed what they had according to the needs that arose. Now, does that mean that we're all called to go and sell all our stuff? I think sometimes God calls us to do that. I wouldn't say every time. See, because what happens is that that becomes legalism. If you're a Christian, you have to sell all your stuff and give away all your money. Well, that's not what God said. What he says there is that they were so close in fellowship, they, they loved one another, there was unity, they'd been praying for one another, and so naturally as a response to that, as a result, they had a love for one another that was willing to give out of necessity. They recognized that God may have given them an abundance so that they can give that abundance to someone else who has a need. And it's funny because sometimes that happens with Kelly and I. For instance, last year, um, God gave us some money, and it, was, it came out of nowhere. We weren't expecting it, and it showed up, and we were like, we recognized that everything that we have is the Lord's, and so we prayed, Lord, why'd you give us this extra money? We, we've got all that we need, and what was funny is as we prayed, God showed us a couple that needed some help, and we were able to, because of that, give them some help. We recognized that God, if He gave us extra stuff that we didn't need, He must have a reason for it. And so we were able to be that hose through which God could bless somebody. 
And what we did through that was, hopefully we didn't do it the wrong way and bring glory to ourselves, but we said, you know, they were like, oh, thank you so much, you guys rock. And we were like, no, this is, God gave it to us. He told us to give it to you. It's about him. He was the one that wanted to bless you because frankly, I could have bought this, this, or this with it. But God had other plans. And so if we recognize that Jesus sometimes wants to bless us, and that's what was happening here. I don't think it was the point that we should all sell our stuff. It's that we should be sensitive to one another's needs, counting others higher than ourselves. They were able to see needs or at least hear about them and to take what they had in abundance of and give it to those who were lacking. A redistribution of wealth. Now, I hear that phrase and I think, are you talking about communism where everyone's kind of forced? And that's not the case at all. It's called communism. They had everything in common. And what that means is that they would basically see that their brother had a necessity and they would just fill it. This was not a system that was forced or even compelled by their church leadership. It was voluntary. And the people came to realize that this was what the Lord was going to use them to do, to love each other practically. And do you realize that sometimes God gives us the ability to to bless somebody practically? Maybe it's financially. Maybe it's with a ride to work. Maybe it's just with a meal. And when we do that, what we do is we're basically being the hands and feet of Jesus. And maybe somebody that's never heard the gospel before, or maybe they've heard of church their whole life, but they've never experienced that kind of giving love. That's when they experience the Lord in a real practical way. And it leads to them asking, you know, why did you do this? And then you can answer, because God first loved me. How can I not love you? You're his creation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus teaching his disciples there in verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. <clears throat> and this is how he recognized them in verse 36 or 35. It says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then the others are in contrast to that. He recognizes them because they were not those that were of a giving spirit. But that being said, what I noticed is that when the word of God is first in the church and it guides fellowship, communion, and prayer among God's people, there is unity. And this is a direct fulfillment of God's will and it is an answer to Jesus' prayer 
when he prayed that for all believers in John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. I'll just turn there real quick. In verse 20 through 23 in John 17, it says, I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about his, his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which we just recognized when Peter preached. There were the group that believed that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So what this does is it proves to the world this unity that's in the church when there is unity. It proclaims to the world that God in fact did send Jesus. And that's the funny thing. We don't realize the implications that it has when when there are churches that there's arguments all the time. It pushes people away from the Lord because they've already got that. They don't need any more of that. They don't need any more strife in their life. They need peace. They need joy. And the only place they're supposed to be able to find that is in the church. But the funny thing is that oftentimes, because we're not yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit, there's strife within the church and they don't want that. It deflects people away from the Lord rather than drawing them to. John chapter 14, I can't remember the verse, says that when the Son of Man is lifted up, He draws all men to Himself. And when Jesus is lifted up in the church as the one who is in charge, He's the one in control. There's unity and He draws people to Himself through the witness that you and I have as a group that not just gets together just because we all have everything in common, but because Jesus is our Father. He's our Savior. We all have that in common. So Acts chapter 2, verse 46 through 47, and we'll we'll finish up. It says, So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, They ate their food with gladness and with simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So results of a church that's yielded to these four pillars, a church that's built on these four things that we discussed, is that God's people are of one mind. They have simplicity of heart. They, They love one another. They have communion and fellowship together. They all have the same purpose in mind. When we're all working towards the same goal, it's a lot easier for us to not step on one another's toes. And then another thing is that God's people gathered together outside of church for fellowship. And that's my heart really for us, that we would love one another enough to hang out more than just on Sunday. And I know that takes time to build relationships. It's a hard thing, especially if you've ever been burned when you've gotten to meet people and you've been in in those kind of situations. And then another thing is that God's people gather with no hidden motives, but with gladness, with simplicity of heart, with contentment. And then God's people, as a result, have favor with non-believers. It says there in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. He's not just talking about the believers inside the church. He's talking about people that don't know the Lord, non-believers. They'll see the witness, the testimony of the church. They'll see God giving them unity. And they'll, maybe they won't quite understand it, but they'll want it. They'll experience it 
through our witness. And as a result of that, it says there that God added to the church daily those who were being saved. I don't know about you guys, but I want to see people come to know Jesus, the Jesus that I know that's changed my life. And one of the ways that we can do that is by having a testimony as a church. But I think oftentimes we leave that just in the church doors. We think, well, you know, if something's not going right, it's because whatever's going on in the church is not right. But it starts with us as individuals. I'd like to point out that the four pillars we talked about today in verse 42, studying the word of God, assembling together with other believers, that can be outside of the church, breaking of bread, communion, and prayer. Those things are wonderful for the church. The health of the church depends on us trusting and being built upon those practices. But if we don't do it as families, then it won't, change, it won't be like that in the church. You can't expect the rest of the week to do one thing and then come one day and all of a sudden everything just kind of fire on all, all cylinders. But maybe some of you are thinking, well, those things aren't happening in my home. And I was convicted about this because they're not necessarily happening in my home. But the cool thing is, is that I don't have to point fingers at other people. I need to start with me. Am I doing these things? Am I personally being devoted continually steadfastly being diligent to do these four things, to studying the Word of God, to breaking bread, to fellowshipping with other believers? Am I devoting time continually to prayer? Because if I will do that, if I will practice that, sure, it's good for the church, but it'll be good for me personally. It'll be good for my wife. I won't be such a turd anymore. You know, it'll be good for my daughter. She'll be raised up seeing my wife and I studying the Word of God together praying together through situations that are easy and through situations that are difficult. And she'll grow up watching us as a couple really trust in the Lord in a visible way. And she'll want that. She'll want us, she sees us as a couple that are unified, even when we don't quite agree with everything with each other. She'll see something that's eternal, that's impacted us, and she'll want a relationship with Jesus like we have. And so that's my prayer for us as individuals. We've seen this on the church level. We've seen how it affected the early church when it first started. But let's let it impact us personally. My goal after reading this was, man, I really need to spend more time in the Word. I do a lot of that. But with my wife, with my daughter. You know, somebody gave us one of those little uh, read with me Bibles. You know, and I've tried at least every other day to sit down with Lucy, even though she doesn't quite get it, just to get her used to me sitting there reading the Word to her. And you know you can also practice communion as a family and as an individual. You don't need a pastor to do that. You know, you can take a little cup and put some grape juice in it and grab a cracker. You can practice just communion with the Lord personally. Do it as a couple. Do it as a family. It's humbling. And it reminds us what what we're supposed to be about. And as you do that, what's going to happen is God's going to impact you. He's going to impact those that are surrounding you. And then He's going to impact individuals in the church through our witness and our testimony. And then people are going to see our families and they're going to want that for their family. Maybe they don't know that it's Jesus. They'll just see that we're a good family. But the cool thing is is that God will add daily to the church those not just that are invited to church, but those who are being saved. That's really what we want to have to have done. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that 
You are a simple God. You don't call us to, uh, to do jumping jacks, even to make offerings anymore. You just call us to trust your son, to spend time daily with him in your word and get to know you personally. I think oftentimes we grow weary of reading your word because we think we just don't quite understand the doctrine. And it's not just about the teaching. It's about knowing you. In the words, we have life because we see Jesus. So Lord, help us to see Jesus in the, in the word. And then Lord, uh, give us a love for one another. Give us the ability to see needs and to pray and to, uh, to maybe even meet some of those needs. Lord, thank you that you've given each one of us something to give to someone else. And Lord, it's just been impressed upon my heart this week that <clears throat> as we see all the welfare programs and all the things that, that drain uh, funding in, the, in the, our nation, it, I'd like to blame politicians, but I can only blame the church for not doing what you've called us to do and to loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. So Lord, help us to see needs in our community and to address them and to be a part of the solution. Lord, thank you that we can come to you in prayer. Thank you that your desire is for each one of us to come to unity until people can see Jesus Christ through us. So Lord, uh, make that impact. Let that change begin with each one of us individually. Lord, let it begin with me. In Jesus' name.